I believe you are starting a new series called Kingdom Carriers. That's right. So for weeks, you're going to learn how to carry the kingdom. My job is to say, well, what is this kingdom you are going to carry? And uh, I, I do a lot of uh, teaching on the kingdom, and uh, there are Vineyard Institute courses where you know, maybe four or five hours uh, of teaching. And so I'm going to try and summarize all of that in one talk that sort of brings it together. <clears throat> and I hope we will escape in time to get to the next service. Um, so those of you who've, who've listened to my you know, longer lectures will find this familiar, but sometimes it does help to get a big subject and just pull it into one um, more dense <clears throat> summary. And you probably know that the kingdom of God is the theology of the vineyard. It's what we uh, revolve around because it's all about Jesus. And it's also the basis of how we do ministry, the kingdom of God. So, if you read the Gospels, you will find that Jesus refers continuously to the kingdom of God. It is the most common uh, thing on his lips as he goes around doing his ministry. And it's not just what he taught about, it's also what he did. So, just to show you that it really was what he talked about, the inauguration of his ministry after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And so he opened his ministry. Then he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among them. So he spoke about the kingdom and then he demonstrated it in healing uh, and liberating people. Then the famous uh, Beatitudes in there, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then when he commissioned the 12 to go and spread his message, as you go preach this message, not any old message, but this particular message, the kingdom of heaven is near. And then his parables are all explaining the kingdom. So the parable of the sower and so on. What is the kingdom of God like? And then he tells the parable. And then the next parable is about the kingdom. And then you find that in his prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer, but I think it would be better to call it the kingdom prayer, he gives the nearest thing to a definition of the kingdom of God. We say, what is this that you're talking about? Pray this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there are two things about that. His understanding of the kingdom is that it is an event that you must pray that it happens. Because if you say, pray, let it come, means it's not here yet, and it hopefully will come. So some people get confused and think the kingdom of God teaching is about that God is sovereign over the universe and he's always, you know, uh, sovereign over the universe. Yes, that's true, but that's not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about an event in history where God would arrive, show up. And what would happen 
is the parallel in, in um, Jewish teaching, often you had two lines and the second line explains the first line. So what is it for the kingdom of God to come as an event? It is when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And the word kingdom in our English translations isn't really the best translation. The Greek word means the rule of God. The active uh, sovereignty of God being applied. And so the kingdom is going to be a time where God shows up in history and has his will done on earth. We can get that out of this. Now, in his inaugural statement, he talked about the time being fulfilled and the kingdom of God being at hand. And these statements, in a Jewish context, assume the whole growing story of expectation in Israel. Because what time is he talking about? The people seem to, he, he could assume they would know what he was saying. That time has come. Well, it is the time promised for centuries by the prophets of Israel, longed for by the people, that he announces now is the time. By the way, this conference we went to, what was called? Now is the time. So I guess we're trying to be in the kingdom. So you can't understand what Jesus meant by the kingdom unless you understand the expectations the people of Israel had. And that's a, a big story, but basically, one can understand it in terms of three growing windows of the coming of the kingdom in the story of Israel. The first event of the kingdom was the Exodus event. A nation under slavery, and God intervened in Egypt through signs and wonders and liberated them and took them to a new destiny. And in the middle of that whole story of the Exodus event, it says that they, they, they confess, the Lord will reign forever and ever. In other words, in this liberation from Exodus, God became our king. In fact, he became our conquering king who conquered our enemies and set us free. So that's the basic idea of the kingdom. Then they enter the promised land and the kingdom grows into a much bigger deal in the Davidic monarchy, David and Solomon, where they become very wealthy, very powerful, and God rules a nation for a few generations through a king on earth that he adopts as his son. And so the rule of God comes through the Davidic monarchy. And Israel lives in this golden age of literally being a country ruled by God, and they are full of prosperity and peace, and it's a wonderful time. And then they mess up really badly by idolatry, and God sends them into exile, and they go into deep depression. And in the darkness of the exile, the prophets of Israel start telling a new story. And they say, God's kingdom is going to come again, but not like it came previously, it will come in a way that eclipses everything that is gone. It's like, you know, you, you've seen nothing yet, as the Americans would say. You ain't seen nothing yet. God is going to come in much more glorious power. Um, and so you get the prophetic promise of the kingdom, and particularly prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on. And what they're saying is, is that nothing less than a new world is coming. 
God is going to intervene in history in a final decisive way where everything that is wrong is going to be put right. Humanity will be liberated from sickness and sin and bondage in every way. Uh, the environment even will be restored. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And God is going to put everything right. And this is an event coming in the future when this world as we know it will end and a new world will begin, inaugurated by God's kingdom coming. So when Jesus stands up and says, guys, it's here. He is making a stupendous announcement of God arriving in history. And so, as the Old Testament ends, there are hundreds of years where nothing happens, and Israel starts to lose hope that God's promises would ever be fulfilled. And then suddenly, dramatically, this wild guy arrives in the wilderness with lots of hair, um, <laughs> eating locusts and honey, and saying, the time is here. And he then introduces Jesus. And it's difficult to overemphasize the sense of sheer drama as Jesus' ministry opens. And the, the operative word as Jesus' ministry opens in Mark's gospel particularly is the word immediately or at once. And you can see probably Mark's gospel was Peter's preaching written down. You can see the excitement. Jesus goes into a synagogue and he, at once a demon manifests and he drives it out. And then he leaves there and he goes to somebody's house and immediately he heals them. And then the next thing, the whole village arrives and immediately he heals them. And the next morning he gets up and it's like, Wow, nothing has happened for 500 years and now everything's happening on one day. <laughs> and what is happening, the key word that the Gospels use to describe the ministry of Jesus is authority. And meaning, he is executing the rule of God. The authority of God's government, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is the activity of Jesus. And so he has authority in his teaching. The people listen to him and they say, we've never heard teaching like this. He teaches with authority. His summons, he calls fishermen and businessmen, leave your business and come and follow me. And they just drop everything because they hear his word as, as the summons of God. He has authority over demons. He doesn't have to go through long rituals. He just speaks to them one word, out. And sometimes hundreds of them are driven out. He has authority over sin. He says to the paralyzed man they let down, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Stand up and walk. And the guy stands up and walk, walks, showing that his sins have been forgiven. He has authority over death. He has this wonderful habit of wrecking funeral services and turning the howling, because they used to really cry loudly in Jewish tradition, weep and wail, and suddenly they're all singing and celebrating. He has authority over nature. He can speak to a storm and tell it to go down, and immediately it obeys. But not everything that they expected from all these promises of the prophets happened. So one of the things that they really wanted to happen when God's kingdom comes is that they'd kick, God would kick the Romans out, and Israel would regain its independence, and there would be like a kind of, the Messiah would lead a war of liberation. And Jesus didn't seem to be interested in that at all. And so even John the Baptist, who introduced him, eventually sent some messages, messengers with a question to Jesus. Are you the one? 
Are you the Messiah? Are you the one in whom the kingdom is coming? Because John the Baptist in prison, about to have his head chopped off, and I reckon we should give him some grace for starting to doubt. You know? Uh, so that leads us to this word mystery, because Jesus would say things like this to his disciples. To those outside, I speak in parables, but to you, I explain the mystery or the secrets of the kingdom of God. And when he talks, he replies to the messengers from John the Baptist. He ends saying, blessed are those who are not stumbled at me. In other words, the way the kingdom was coming in him didn't quite fit all of their expectations, and there was an element of mystery to it. So that leads us to all the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom. And if you look at them all and you put them all together, it is really quite mysterious. In fact, it's quite confusing. So first of all, it seems the kingdom of God is still a future end-of-the-world event. So at the end of Matthew and Mark and Luke, he gives this long sermon about how there are going to be wars and rumors of wars and false prophets and false Christs, and then there's going to be a long period of terrible tribulation. And then after that, suddenly, like the lightning lights up the sky, the Son of Man will come, and he will judge all of humanity and he will sit on a great throne, and he will separate the sheep from the goats. And some will go to eternal judgment, and some to eternal life. And that's the coming of the kingdom. And so, throughout the New Testament, the book of Revelations, it is a yet-to-occur, end-of-the-world, let's say, apocalyptic event. But with equal clarity, Jesus has all these statements to the effect that in his ministry, the kingdom of God is now present. So his message is, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And if I, by the finger of God, drive out demons, then the kingdom of God is in the very midst of you. And the hinge of history has taken place. The law and the prophets were, until John, since then, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. It is breaking into history. It's a now experience. Then to get us just a little bit more confused, he said, no, it's not actually here yet, but it's very near. He said to his young disciples, some of you won't die before you see it happening. He says, go, go on a mission to Israel, and before you finish going to all the towns and villages of Israel, it will come. And the word near conjures up the idea of a, of a storm building, and you can already smell the rain in the air, uh, but it hasn't quite come yet. Or a woman in labor and she's advanced in labor, but the baby hasn't been born yet. So he's sort of saying, the kingdom is an any-moment event. It'll come in this generation, but it hasn't yet come. Then there's a whole lot of parables where he says, don't be confused. It's been delayed. So the parable of the, of the nobleman who went on a long journey and came back after a long time. And Luke tells us he taught that parable because some people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And evidently it wasn't going to appear at once. So what is this thing called the kingdom of God? And here is the important, if you remember nothing else, the sentence I am about to utter, you must remember. The mystery of the kingdom is in this, that it is always simultaneously Present, near, delayed, and future. 
Now, most events can't be that, like that. But God can do all sorts of things. And so, how can we put this together? And this leads to a kind of model <clears throat> that I and many others use to explain the kingdom in the worldview of Judaism at the time. In, in the Jewish worldview, God deals with humanity from creation through history, moving forward through promise and fulfillment to a climactic end of the world, day of judgment, apocalyptic moment when he will intervene. And then there will be a new world at a much higher quality of life. And as the book of Revelation explains it, a new heaven and a new earth where the former things have passed away, the kingdoms of, the, of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. There will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. And God will be our God, and we will be his people, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that's the kingdom of God, all right, coming. But what they never expected was that somehow, mysteriously and miraculously, the realities of that future world would arrive in the present in the person of Jesus. And so in his ministry and message, which we just described, his authority and his signs and wonders and exorcisms, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, and in his ascension, which unleashed Pentecost, in all of those ways, the powers of the coming age have arrived in the present. And what people thought could only happen at the end of time suddenly is possible now in Jesus. And it, it, it continues to come. And so the result is that the Christian life is lived in a mysterious zone where for us, this world is still here around us. This age is still here. Prior to this world being ended, for us, the new world has already begun. And so Jesus says, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. The word eternal life means the life of the coming ages. You already start to live the future now. And you already start to participate in its realities. And so there is now this strange overlap of two ages that exist. So, different... Uh, Bible teachers and theologians have tried to find language to just summarize the essence of this idea. And the book that influenced John Wimber was called The Presence of the Future, which I think is quite a good way of putting it. A common phrase that most vineyard people have heard is the already and the not yet. So if you ask, is the kingdom of God here already? The answer is yes. And then if you ask, is the kingdom of God not yet here? The answer is yes. Uh, if you want to get wax really theological, enacted, inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology means the end of the world. Inaugurated means the end of the world is already being rolled out. And enacted means not just in theory, but in demonstration. So that's a good pithy way of summarizing it. So once you've understood that this is what the kingdom is, is like, you realize that everything about Jesus is the coming of the kingdom. So the kingdom comes in his proclamation and demonstration. The kingdom comes in his death because he said, 
as he dies, all of humanity will be gathered into him. And he said, now is the judgment of this world. And what happened in the cross is that humanity either is going to be judged at the end of time, or if your destiny is taken up in Jesus, then the cross is your day of judgment. And everything that is wrong about your life has been sentenced and dealt with, and you will never be sentenced for that again. And so if you are in the cross of Jesus, your day of judgment is over, and you're home free forever. That's quite a good deal, I think. And the resurrection is the window on the future because Jesus manifested a, a human body that was real, could eat, be embraced, and yet could arrive in the middle of a building that was locked and then disappear. A body of a future world. And a body that is the prototype of the future bodies we are going to get modeled on his risen body. And the older I get, the more excited I become <laughs> by this part of the message of the kingdom of God. And then Pentecost, when Peter explains it, and they say, what is this speaking in tongues and the power of God? He says, this is fulfilling the prophecy in the last days I will pour out my spirit. So Pentecost is where we literally experience the power of what the future world is going to be like in a kind of down payment. So everything about Jesus is the coming of the kingdom. So that leads to how long I've, you know, I'm being really fast today. I think I got so scared by having to get into the car <laughs> that I'm probably going to talk for 15 minutes or something. How much, how much more time have I got? Perfect. Two more slides. So once you understand the kingdom of God, you actually get spectacles that makes you read the New Testament through those spectacles. And everything about the Christian life, you read through the, the, it becomes the paradigm or the model for viewing everything. And all sorts of implications flow out from there. So let's go through these implications. The first is, if the day of judgment and the, the end of the world where God will come has occurred in Jesus then Jesus is God coming. Actually, the way Jesus described it is that the Jews expected the glory of God would come back and fill the temple. And he said, he is the temple. God has tabernacled in our midst in the person of Jesus. And that's why we have to conclude that Jesus is God. Then, since the end of the world came already in Jesus... It means we are continually living in the end of the world. So we are living in the end of the world, moving closer and closer to the end of the world until we get to the very end of the world. And Christianity is continually, continually living in the dimension of the last days. We live in the last days, we move towards the last of the last days until we will get to the last day. It means that the barrier between this world and the next world for us has been ruptured. And so the symbolism of the veil being torn in the temple, the, the holy of holies is where we will see God face to face in the world to come. The outer court is where we only experience God symbolically. But now, actually, 
that face-to-face encounter with God can just blow through a torn veil and blow into our space. And so you never know what's going to happen. I've been in meetings where you're just preaching and you're going to, you think you're going to have coffee and it's safe, this, it's safe to come to church today. And then the Holy Spirit just falls on people and overcomes them. And sometimes they have to be carried into their cars hours later because they are overwhelmed. And you think, wow, this is scary. And another way of putting it, in any moment is the potential of the last moment to arrive. So this understanding of the kingdom means you live in total, in continual expectation of the any minute arrival of God. That's, it becomes quite fun too. Then it means that because the kingdom of God has come in Jesus, it's not as though you can say, oh well, Let's say the kingdom of God, where God will restore all of creation, do all these things, is like a wonderful big chocolate cake. You can't say, well, I'm just going to eat this little slice, and I've got the kingdom. Actually, the kingdom has in it every aspect of the kingdom, from healing to deliverance to the restoration of the environment to things I'm going to go into now. And so all of it is available at any time in this mysterious nature of the kingdom. It means, therefore, that church history has ever-increasing moments of the inbreaking of the kingdom. Pentecost was the kingdom coming, and revivals are fresh Pentecosts. And so if you look at church history, I see that the gaps between great revivals are getting shorter and shorter. And as we get in the last days, towards the end of the last days, to the last day, more and more of the last days arrive. So in my little lifetime, which is very ancient, I have lived through at least four great moves of the Holy Spirit. The Jesus People Revival, the Charismatic Renewal, the beginning of the vineyard, the Toronto thing. So the next one's around the corner, guys. History isn't going off into a sort of whimpering defeat. The history of God's activity in the world is winding up to a final climax and expect more and more and more of the inbreaking of the kingdom. This is, this is the way to understand world missions. What are we doing when we carry the kingdom? We are announcing and demonstrating that God wants his planet back. That in Jesus, his future for the world has arrived, and we are the subversive agents of that new world wherever we go. And that is what world missions is. This is the way we should understand the Christian life. And this is a little bit difficult, but as mysterious is the kingdom, so mysterious are Christians. Because if the kingdom is already not yet, that means you are an already not yet person. So since you came to Jesus, you have changed. And yet there's some things about you that haven't yet changed. And you are an ongoing project of the kingdom arriving in you, just as the kingdom is continually arriving in history. And how to understand the the victories and the frustrations of the Christian life. The only way 
is to understand your identity in the kingdom of God and, and God's promise of triumphant transformation in your life because the kingdom has come in you. This is the only way to understand healing. So people give all sorts of funny explanations about healing, um, but the kingdom is the only way to understand it. So when we pray for the sick and they get healed, what does that mean? It means the kingdom of God has come. And when we pray for the sick and they don't get healed, what does that mean? The kingdom of God has not yet come. Because the kingdom is always simultaneously here, near, delayed, and future. And so the healing ministry is as mysterious as the kingdom is. That doesn't mean we get all passive and say, oh, well, it's not all here yet. No, no, no. We press in because Jesus says, go and preach the kingdom and heal the sick. And because the kingdom is here, the healing power is available to us. But we're not going to get into a kind of um, all or nothing thing and start claiming healings that didn't happen and not being real about a person dying and not having a theology of suffering. No, we, we don't want to do that because we understand the kingdom. And then, this is the framework for understanding the witness of the church in the world. So, people go off into too much of the already and too much of the not yet. So, the one understanding is, as a Christian, don't try and get involved in issues of social justice and social transformation because the, this bad world's going to burn and we're going to be raptured one day and we'll leave, leave. And so, why? It's under God's judgment. Well, that is saying that the kingdom of God hasn't come. No, the kingdom has arrived. And especially in the history of revivals, whole nations are often transformed by the gospel for centuries. So powerful. You look at the history of this country and Wesley and Whitfield and so on. Uh, massive social transformation for a long time through revivals like that. And we can make a massive difference. But then if you start saying, oh, we can bring a utopia on earth and we can set up a Christian government that will make this a perfect country and this is a Christian nation, then you're living in a kind of cuckoo land of false reality. Because the fact is, only when Jesus comes will justice finally come. And this world is a depraved, unjust place. But in this unjust world, we are agents of justice. And part of the gospel is to confront injustice and liberate especially the powerless who are abused by the powerful. We are always on the side of the powerless because the kingdom comes to set humanity free. And then finally, <clears throat> this is the framework for understanding the Christian stewardship of the environment. So again, you can go off in two different directions say, look, we've messed up this planet so badly, it's incurable. You know, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, and I'll be in that new world. Um, well, no, that's saying the kingdom hasn't come. We are green Christians. We don't belong necessarily to green political parties, but we are greening the world. And, and the whole way God made man in his image in Genesis was he made us in his image and he said, rule over nature. 
And so if our image of God is restored, we must be restored to be responsible rulers under God of the environment. And so Christians who don't think the environment is part of their calling have not understood the kingdom of God. It is part of our calling. And so if you put all these implications together, you will see that the theology of the kingdom gives us a very big picture understanding of God's purposes in the world and our involvement in those purposes. And so, as I walk out the door, be carriers of the kingdom of God. Amen.